Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and is so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of fascinating stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. Today, five years after the first appearance on what was then called the Arrest All Mimics podcast, Simon and Arpova, the names above the door of the fantastic agency Dixon Baxi, returned to the show and they're action-packed with advice about creativity, about running a successful design agency on the right values, people first, then the work, and then the money is their ethos. We're going to talk about the fantastic work and the rebrands of Everton Football Club and AC Milan, and it's just full of so much great insight into what it takes to sustain excitement, enjoyment, adventure, and creativity at the highest level. Hello and welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast. My name is Ben Tallon. I'm your host. Got it loud there. <laughs> I'm competing with apocalyptic doom rain on the roof of my studio. Um, and sirens in the background. Have you ever noticed that? How um, when the rain falls, the sirens seep into the muggy, damp atmosphere. I think it's just human nature, isn't it? When it feels apocalyptic out there people behave as such and they're just on edge maybe that's it maybe i'm going mad in this little cabin (laughs) welcome back how are you doing i hope you're good you're enjoying the world cup do you feel cold about the do i say the c word it's all a bit ugly isn't it um it's taken the edge off it for me there's a weird symmetry um and it's kind of ironic but For anybody who's read my first book, Champagne and Wax Crayons, I talked about how one of my earliest ambitions when I set out to freelance as an illustrator was to be full-time freelance by the time Euro 2008 came round. I graduated in summer 2006, so I set what felt like a realistic two-year deadline, and I kind of achieved it. I was full-time at the time, but it was a three-month hiatus from full-time work because I'd saved up that amount of living costs, three months worth. So I could give it a good crack of the whip and lay some foundations. But I knew that chances were I was gonna be back in a job before I was able to sustain myself full time. And that was the case. So I went back part time to Preston City Council who were kind enough to have me back in my old job as a recycling officer for the next couple of months before I eventually went full time. But I did get to watch Euro 2008 while I worked and it was lovely. I didn't have to worry about sick days or coming up with elaborate excuses that wouldn't be, wouldn't arouse suspicion. (laughs) But now that I'm here, now that I'm full-time, albeit during a real quiet spell and what feels like hanging by a thread, um, I am full-time and I am able to watch it. And I'm not that bothered because it's all just a bit ugly, isn't it? But anyway, we're not here to talk about politics too much today because I want to celebrate having one of my favourite guests Dixon Baxi back on the show. So Dixon Baxi are a wonderful agency and they've been going for 21 years. Founded by Simon Dixon and Apolva Baxi. Um, great, great guys who I loved talking to the first time around. And I was even more excited to talk to them this time around, having had such a joyous chat the first time. And I wanted to do it now because in recent times, Simon has become such a presence on LinkedIn in particular 
but in the design industry at large, sharing the wisdom, the learned wisdom and the experiences that are golden to us guys who are a little bit further back, further down the ladder when it comes to uh, time spent in industry. And Simon's always willing to have a chat. He'd, he'd suggested a few times that we do a second episode. And it took me a while to get my act together, being a new parent and all. But we did. And I went to their new studios in London. They were in a different office last time I, I visited, which was also really cool. But this one looked fantastic. And they're now up to about 50 staff. And they just work on such cool projects. But they do it. I wanted to find out what sustained the magic because it can be hard going at that kind of agency level to keep creative integrity, to keep producing original or at least engaging and exciting work. But these guys do it as close to perfection as you're probably going to get. And it seems like all the staff are really engaged and integrated into what they do. So I wanted to just get inside the two minds of the guys with their names on the door and find out what that looks like. And we're also going to talk about their work for Everton and AC Milan, why it's important to create a, create a safe bubble in uh, in the workplace during these tumultuous times and how it feels very dark and gloomy out there, but why it's important to create a little culture within the studio that people feel safe in and excited and engaged so lots of great chat coming up quick thank you to founding sponsors of the show illustration x you can go and check out any of their wonderful global illustration and animation portfolios right now over at illustrationx.com you can always check them out on social media at we are illustration x brilliant agency they were the, the guys who suggested that I even start podcasting. It wasn't something I thought about at the time, but it was something that made absolute sense when the founder, um, when managing director, Harry Lyon-Smith, suggested that I talked about creativity all the time with a passion, and why didn't I stick a microphone there and learn how the hell to podcast? It's questionable whether I did that <laughs> in a technical standpoint, but I'm still here, I'm still with my little Zoom microphone, which we will talk about during this interview with Simon and Apova. Um... But yeah, go and check out Illustration X. They're great guys doing a lot of great work for the for the industry. And I just want to congratulate them on their uh, B Corp status now, which is a big deal. And they're very excited with Just Cause about that. So go and have a look at all the good things they're up to. They've got an awesome news section on the site too. And uh, I am forever grateful that they had the vision to not just make me be an illustrator all the time and give me the freedom and the support to go and become a podcaster, which I love doing to this day. So... I'm kind of trying to make a habit of touching on mental health. I'm going to do it, hopefully, on every episode moving forward, at least when there's a reason to. But there really are a lot of reasons to at the moment. I see so many people struggling and kind of sharing, you know, sharing their feelings on social media, which is both good and bad. So it's good when we're able to have conversations and kind of... Um, open that chat which is really cathartic for a lot of people and it's a, a space where we can connect with like-minded people who might also be suffering in the way that we are or can bring us some comfort or some insights into how they're managing their mental health but it can also be really bad because I see almost cries for help you know tweets that suggest all is not well in somebody's world before they then go missing for a little while and people are commenting sort of saying you know I hope you're okay get in touch drop me a message and all the rest of it and then nothing back, and it's you know it's worrying when that happens, and you you immediately it, what it does is it strips social media back to its bollocks, and reminds you that they're human beings behind these avatars, and that's not just in in the sense of trolling or being nasty to people, but I think it's easy to see these avatars, you know, our little profile picture and our statuses, and and we sort of live by these 
extensions of maybe the real human being a little too much at times. I don't know if that's right, but I think it certainly is for me sometimes. And when you see something like that and you see someone struggling, it just boils it right down and, and it reminds you that there's a human being sat in a house or an office or walking somewhere and just feeling fucking miserable. Because there's so much bullshit out there at the moment. I um, I caught up with a friend from Belarus in the week and uh, it's one of those kind of perspective checks when you think you've got it bad in your country. And we do on a lot of levels. I, I really loathe this government and what they stand for and the arrogance and the the open um, flagrance in their policies and what they're doing to, to people's livelihoods and moods and psychologies and the rest of it. But then you speak to someone in Belarus and, you know, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of that. It's out there for you to read about if you want to. But these guys are neighbouring with Ukraine, you know, and, and, and they're, 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 their political regime are sort of supporting the war. But the people are really not. And I can't speak for everyone, of course, but the people that I know are good guys. And I went out to Minsk in 2015 and then to, no, sorry, 2016 and then 2018. And I had two wonderful trips doing live art. I did some talks for the local design community. And there was a real sense of resilience and building their own identity, emerging from the kind of Soviet, Soviet Union times. Um, and I, you know, I learned that a lot of that's been stripped away now because of the war and because of the way the elections went over there. Again, go and read up on that if you want to. But it's heartbreaking, you know, when you look these people in the eyes and they become your friends and you, and you learn that they're at the mercy of um, troubles like that. And then closer to home, you know, we're all having to deal with the climate crisis. Like, look at the rain. I can hear it coming down all day here. It's, it's never known it to be so torrential so often. And then the heat in the summer, and it, it doesn't bode well. And, you know, the sham that was... COP27 is kind of it's upsetting and I think my point is that this is also a space for me to spew my guts you know I, I'm not here just to kind of preach design or illustration or talk about industry and business one coping mechanism that I have stumbled upon recently and I would suggest it to anybody who's feeling a little down or has been or intermittently feels down much like I have recently is to find a focus, find a singular focus that gives you some belonging and, and um, a cause and an area where you can make a difference. You know, where are you best suited to? I've spent so long stop-starting these projects or trying to illustrate about something that's made me angry or um, it's almost lashing out, you know, I'd be sharing tweets, retweeting political stuff or environmental stuff and it's coping, it's kind of, it's fight or flight, you know? That's a scientific thing when we read these alarmist headlines, no matter whether they're true or not. It sets us off on an animalistic, instinctive part of our human condition, which is fight-or-flight mindset, um, which results in us feeling really anxious. And there's a fallout from that. You know, we feel really vulnerable and tired on the other side of it. And I think when it's bad weather and dark nights, it really doesn't help. And I did an episode not too long back with uh, Matt McArdle, founder of New Physio Fitness, sorry, New Physio and Fitness, um, about physical activity and about releases that way, and about nutrition, about why it's really important to look after ourselves, particularly in these bleak winter months and the cost of living crisis and everything else. But um, I think to have a focus and to have a, a singular path that you can work on that helps you feel like you're doing your bit is really healthy. And I've mentioned it before, but I was I was fortunate enough to chat to a personal mentor of mine, which was Ken Garland, a real inspiration who I wrote about in my graphic activism dissertation back at uni. 
And Ken was kind enough to have me into his home when I was doing the Express campaign on behalf of Calm, which was a, a male mental health awareness campaign, but specifically looking at the emotional benefits of artistic expression. So time and time again, I preach why creativity to me is, is the go-to. It's the way I get out of my lulls. But for too long, that took on a very scattered approach. So I would make these, you know, two posters about something that made me angry. And then I would go off and rant on the podcast. And then I'd go on Twitter in the creative community and I'd share things on there. And ultimately, it just stretched my mind more and more so that I just felt this wasp's nest of activity and um, irritation. And, and it didn't help. And I couldn't make sense of my thoughts. But what I realised recently is that above all, creativity has a major part to play in, in the future for all of us. Because if we can't be creative, if we can't come up with innovative, imaginative solutions to the crises we face at large in the world, and to get around oppressive regimes, which this one in the UK appears to be increasingly that, then we are in trouble. You know, if generations grow up without any creative education and they're just following instructions and remembering facts, then we're going to struggle to overcome any of this stuff. So it's happened in the last couple of weeks, but, you know, I only have to look at the, the, the work, the pile of work and tasks on my desk. I'm writing the Creative Condition. It's coming out next year. I'm doing the Creative Condition podcast. I talk in schools, universities and businesses about creativity, about owning the personality in your inner weirdo and um, finding the ways to create what's unique and what's human, what AI perhaps can't replicate and steal. And I'm very passionate about it and I love it and I love the research and it, and, it, and it brings me into new social circles where I get to discuss that in depth. I was having a beery conversation on Friday with a friend about um, nomadicity, nomad, <laughs> I can't say it, nomadicity, which is the DNA ingrained need to get around for humans and I'm not just talking about travelling overseas or anything like that because we know that you know the, the environmental impact of that is not good either so we're going to have to look at that moving forward um, but it's about the need to, to be energised and move from A to B and it, and it helps to fuel our creativity so I come across all these amazing things you know I've got an episode coming up with a judoka which is a person who you know competes in judo which I never knew that word awesome word <laughs> and it's taken me on a path where I'm talking to people and building this new community and it's given me this singular cause which is to support, strengthen and spread creativity and if I can do that, I'm going to play the most optimal part of Ben Talon in the climate crisis. And that's given me great consolation and mental health strengthening recently. And that's it. I mean, that's the point I wanted to make. What's your cause? A lot of the podcasts that I do come back to personality and about who we are, where we've been, what we've seen, what we find funny, strengths, weaknesses. How can we bundle all that up and use it for artistic expression and to make sense of our lives and to find where we're most empowered to, to help the world? And I just think that if we could all do that and find our sector, you know, there's a reason firefighters are firefighters and there's a reason they're vital to our society. And I would say the same of nurses, doctors, police, but right through to anything from builders to scientists to artists to writers to gardeners to DIY handymen you know it, it, the, the list goes on musicians it's all relevant and there's a reason society works at large and that academic education is very pointed in one direction and I hope to uh, make a dent on that
so that's that's today's rant. That's what I wanted to say about mental health today. But I'm feeling a little better at large because of that. I've been strengthened recently and my mental muscles are a little more resilient to the attacks of news and doom and all the stuff that's out there. So I would just suggest doing that, finding your thing. So like I mentioned, next year The Creative Condition is going to be my second non-fiction book and it's very exciting as part of this whole drive towards creativity. It's one of a number of things I'm working on. I'm, I'm writing again for Design Week at the moment. You can check out my columns all along the same lines, digging into various aspects of the creative human condition. At designweek.co.uk, I'm also doing audio versions of those pieces on this podcast. For those of you who might not have the time or the inclination to read, you might prefer their reading to be done in an audio format. That's cool. I'm a big audiobook listener myself, big podcast fan, podcaster, obviously. <laughs> and um, thought it might be nice to do it that way. So it's exciting times on that front, but that's enough, like I say, about me. Um, let's get to it. Simon Dixon, a Paul Baxi. Forces of Nature, top guys at Dixon Baxi, brilliant agency, and we're going to get into all these many topics. Big thank you once again to the supporter of the show, Illustration X. Go and have a little gander at their illustration and animation portfolios over at illustrationx.com. Social media, we are Illustration X. Enjoy the chat. I'd love your feedback. Get that to me at Ben Talon or at Ben Talon Pod on social media. I'm prominent on LinkedIn these days. Maybe that's a good place to start the conversation. If you're not already connected, do so. If you've got the time, leave us a little review on the podcast and subscribe. That's the best way you can support the show for free. Thank you, guys. Enjoy. It's looking at creativity as just a human trait yeah. as opposed to... It applied to everything. Yeah, because yeah. it's the fundamental mistake that so many people make that they just think of being artistic as yeah. creativity. Yeah. And go, well, I can't draw. And you go, well, why are you distilling one of humanity's defining yeah. traits? Science this is creative. Exactly. Invention's yeah. creative. It's, it's funny creative, that, isn't yeah. it, how people think um, yeah, drawing is the manifestation of all creativity. And, <laughs> and yet, you, you know, you can be uh, creative in all aspects of life. And... Yeah. Well, yeah. the difference I think, that, right? the difference with us is it's um, it's applied creativity, isn't it? Yeah. So what they think of, they think about art and things like that. Well, you can go paint, you might make poetry or whatever, make your own music. But with us, it's applied to a problem. Yeah. So that's why it's designed. So you know, that's yeah. why I think a lot of people don't get that everything is designed. Yeah. Like, the, the, everything. Yeah. Of course. And then well, when you think about creativity. It's not uh, the sole preserve of uh, designers, right? No. You know, it's, it's everyone and, and anything. You know, if you think about um, engineers, architects, uh, we joke sometimes, maybe not accountants, uh, but you know, you can be creative yeah. in your accounting you as well. <laughs> but all those things are a manifestation of creativity, the sense of innovation, the sense of doing something different, and you're thinking around a problem you know that that is a form of mm-hmm. um invention and, and innovation and we so, did a, yeah. we did a session the other day <clears throat> we do these things called ignite sessions where before we work with a client on a project we have two weeks where we just do some work for ourselves mm. it's a chance to just kind of invent and do new stuff so we do what's called a campfire we all get around and we all share ideas and stuff and in this one for some reason everyone stood on a chair and it had to write inside three minutes a piece of like slam poetry about mm. the project and there's 14 people mm-hmm. and we all in turn went up and stood up captain my captain or whatever it is and recited this poetry and it was just amazing because by the time you got to the fifth one it was like an arms race everyone's wow. like banging it out yeah, 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 and I yeah. went dead, dead last and it actually turned out I was terrible but one of our um, team Maria um, she, she's not necessarily known as like a hands-on creative 
but her poetry was just amazing. Mm. Like really, really inspiring. Yeah. And of course, what happened was everyone realised everybody can write. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah. no matter what discipline they're from, they're all writing. So, you know, there's something nice about that kind of democratisation that everybody's creator. Some people obviously can apply it a little bit more. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. It's your language, isn't it? That's why I've come to see it as reading a lot of, um, lot of Ken Robinson. Yeah, Actually, yeah. speaking of slam poetry, I had, a, I had the former UK slam poet champion on the podcast. Oh, really? <laughs> so like, yeah, Mark May Smith is calling. Amazing. We both lived in Manchester. Did at you the get time. him to riff any live like poetry? I can't remember if he did any on the show. He might have done a couple of little bits, but he was yeah. an interesting, deep character. Yeah. Was he? Yeah, and it was very accidental how we got into it, but yeah, yeah. I bet you'd be half decent at that. Or <laughs> I know, like a John Cooper Clark. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I love him though. It's cool, isn't it? I like yeah. the way he sees he's, the way he sees the world, which is oblique. Yeah. And and he's um, there's a positive positivity to the sharpness of how he looks at the world, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it's really really interesting. Oh, I love that, and that's it. The more I do this, the more the less you sort of see between barriers between disciplines you know yeah. I had somebody refer to it not too long back as a circle of competence which I thought was good because that helps me to kind of stay within where I'm not mm-hmm. going to make a fool of myself that's interesting but I can see you know like just doing this I talk the way I write and I write the way I draw it's mm-hmm. me you know it comes from yeah. my personality but that's why it's interesting yeah and that's, that's, that's a big part of this book really is about that and it's about how what as part of it I've done this sort of exercise of looking at personality and do you remember Top Trumps? You ever play them? Yeah. yeah. Looking at kind of scoring personality traits like that. <laughs> but looking at sort of the one out of ten or the two out of tens as, a, as what, and flipping it. So in my mm-hmm. case, I'm quite haphazard and clumsy by nature, which is yeah. infuriating in the house. But that's my drawing style. If I try yeah, to sure. polish anything, like, it falls apart. Yeah. So that becomes a, really po- a real positive. And the flip side, passion and drive, I've got an abundance. That can be a bad thing if I can't if I don't manage it. Yeah, of course. You know, I can pester people too much. I can mm. take on a thousand projects and yeah. think I can do them all really well. And it's like you've got to look at it both in both respects, and that's been really interesting in terms of breaking down. It's cool. Um, it's cool, isn't it? Because what you're doing there is being self-aware of the fact that the whole of you is the whole of you, mm. rather than going, I, "I'm only this type of person, and I only." take these positive traits because it flips constantly doesn't it you yeah. based on your mood circumstance who you're collaborating with oh yeah and we have the same feeling that um if you support people's weaknesses or use them as fuel the strengths will be better anyway yeah and sometimes you just need to put a bit of a rain on them yeah but it's better to pull someone back than not go far enough oh yeah well it's like you said this on poetry sometimes you just have to go not very good at that it's a that's a linear thing yeah i'll just manage that or not use it whereas yeah, exactly. other times there might be this un, unseen advantage to that yeah you know a lot of people have uh latent superpowers that that don't um that aren't manifest in the studio because they are they fit a box or a perceived box it's the limiting beliefs yeah. idea that you know you create a perceived box or a a title does and then you can't color outside you know that shape and um yeah those exercises for us have have revealed lots of different things so as part of the campfire as well we might do other things with a much wider team that then generate um so many new thoughts and and the whole thing for us is is to find new perspectives on uh on the world and so everyone's cultural kind of perspectives and how their influences are baked into the answers to those particular exercises which might lead us somewhere new and the thing that we constantly face is the the uh, challenge of either outperforming or um, doing something different to the things that we've done uh, or that's out in the world 
and it's very hard as we were just saying because you know everyone does everything everyone sees everything uh, so it's just it's funny actually but if you root back to why that business or company or idea exists there might be something interesting and original there um, but all these exercises are really to, to unearth that you know? mm-hmm. and um, yeah, yeah I think it's a really smart move to allow time for that as well yeah that's the thing yeah it's so easy when you start working and creating and you start with the brief to jump to the process and we'll be presenting yeah. to the client in 10 days or we'll be, we've got to get this made for such and such. But of course your mind doesn't work like that. And you were just saying earlier about flow states. If you can goof around enough and try different ways of bending your mind a little bit, you might find that flow in a different way. And if you can feel that in your stomach, uh, wherever you feel it, you know that the work, whatever comes out, you're going to be into it. Mm-hmm. And then you let, and you just let go then. And yeah. you let go for a while. And then you qualify it. Once you've got something to look at, you can qualify it. Whereas otherwise, you're constantly kind of tapping at the edges and you don't necessarily get anything that's different. Yeah. And you need to make some crap stuff before you make some good stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like when you work, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because there's a spontaneity to how you work. Mm. But it's thousands and thousands of hours that go into that spontaneity that makes it good, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's a sort of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So it might appear haphazard to someone, but you've had to do that so many times to make it look effortless. Yeah. Do you know what, do you know what it's I mean? Actually, it's actually, it's like, it can be the other way around, as in it can be a battle to not contrive it, because yeah, yeah. you yes. do get used to ways of making that simplicity look raw. Yeah. But then that becomes a process if you're not careful. Yeah. Right? You know, you, you do, you lose it's a funny that. I think that, that's, yeah. that's, that's one of the big challenges. You know, we're in our, I guess, 21st year, 20 years, 21st year. And, um, you know, we built up a, a reservoir of work and, and uh, kind of a way of working that we think serves us well from a principles point of view, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of doing the right thing, rejecting convention and so on and so forth. But even within that, it's baked recipes and systems of doing things. And so we're trying to unlearn those habits and it's hard. It's gonna take some time. You know, in fact, we've got sort of an 18 month arc of, of the entire studio going on a creative journey of reinvention. Mm-hmm. We don't know where it might lead, but we have to kind of break the scar tissue um, of things that that we know work, but actually we have to leave them behind to maybe create new ways of doing things. And making that's something the exciting like, Making something aspect. work that you don't know is going to work is much yeah. more fun. Yeah. yeah. You know, that feeling, like the uncertainty of like, what if it doesn't work? Oh, but, yeah. But that's, that's where it's fun, I think. Yeah. Because if you know it's going to work, it just means you're not stretching yourself. Exactly. I mean, sometimes you have yeah. to do that because there's a practical reason. But... Um, you know, over it's like a body of work thing, isn't it? As soon as you feel like you can do that relatively easily, you need to do you something plateaued. to yeah. mess it up a little bit. You yeah. don't forget everything, of course. No. You still bring the experience with you. Yeah. That's, that's a question that's come to me there. So I'm watching the, the video series you did, you guys did, which is fantastic, by the way. So Thank really you. great, great parts to that. Um, that kind of attitude, that, that willingness to not just look at the bottom line, is crucial. But you do it really well, and, and there seems to be a real consistency to it. Is that something that you think was perhaps always a part of you as, as kind of creatively inclined people, or is it something you've just learned by seeing that getting out of that comfort zone works and then do it more? Yeah, it's a bit of both, I think. I think because we're both, we started out as practicing designers, we were used to making things, and there's something kind of selfish about that because you, you're giving something of yourself. and you can remember what that feeling's like where you haven't made something before and it's like really exciting that it's the first time you've made that thing. Mm. So I suppose when we think about the projects we're doing now, we're creating the space for the team to do that 
and allow them to go on that journey and make those mistakes and try new things and do all that stuff. And what we find is it just makes better designers. Yeah. Because what you don't want to do is them to be a replication of you. They should, we should share some principles and ethos. And then I think also the world at large has got very negative and heavy and difficult. So what we're trying to do is in the studios create like a safe bubble for everybody, which is we can't control the world, but we can control what we can control and how we react to it. And we can be financially stable and we can put people first and make sure that they're in a good frame of mind to at least enjoy what they do because mm. creating for a living is amazing. Yeah. It's best. It can be frustrating and scary and you can get imposter syndrome and stuff, so you can get lost. But being somebody who expresses themselves for a living is, is really fucking cool. Mm -hmm. But the world outside at the moment is just very heavy. Yeah. So we're trying to hold that tide back so that in here the work is still, uh, keeps some of that magic, I suppose. Mm. You have to, don't you? I think um, it's that art school ethos, I think, if it was, because I went to a college in Keyfleet that was an old industrial unit, mm. but it was magic. You walked in, it was quite cavernous, yeah. and it was all partition walls, and everyone was up to something that meant something to them. And I'll never forget that, coming from the rigidity of school and walking in there, and I've always just, that's been at the core of everything I've done, is keep that magic, even if, it, like you say, on a freelancer level, you know, writing fiction. It's like, it's scary because it's not paying the bills anytime mm. soon, but it's it's influencing the stuff that does pay my bills in a very yeah. indirect way, which I guess goes back to what you say about making sure there's that space for your team to tap mm. into maybe something they might never have done before that might open up new doors. Yeah, it's, it's really critical that. I think we, um, you know, often talk about you know, you, you are the things that you absorb, you know, it's how you edit your cultural references and particularly in a world where, uh, you know, there's uh, Behance in Instagram and so on and so forth, you can start to soak in what's out there. So one of the things that, that we do is uh, pay a lot of attention to the, the shelves and the library and the books and the influences that we have here and help the team kind of use those and dig into things that move just beyond design or brand into fashion and culture and sport and they're all making choices about where they travel you know how they get to work and all of those things are moments of inspiration so a lot of the times there's almost um, we want to break down the formality of the process so that in that first stage of invention it's not necessarily about we have to solve this problem for this brand in this way um, it's tapping into all of those cultural references to, to find something new. And to be honest, it's, it's creativity is play. Um, and as we said, there's kind of a lot of limiting beliefs about how to do that. So we kind of have these manifesto sessions or exercises and so on to create that safe space. And then oftentimes, as you say, the magic happens. So although we're in the studio, we, we try and change the mental context Right? So it's, it's the space that you mentally create to play in. Mm -hmm. And it, it can be this big, making it small, or uh, huge. And it changes how people think. And we think that's fantastic. You know, so um, as a team, as kind of you know, uh, essentially leading certain projects or, or creativity, you have to change the context to allow people to play in different spaces. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you find that you, you must design for yourself first, presumably, or create for yourself yeah. first? There's always a strong presence of what I'm working, you know, something I'm working on just for me, yeah. whether that, you know, ever bleeds into client world, but it, but it does, it always does. Yeah. That, you know, that, I'm, I find it, to this day, I find it incredibly exciting yeah. to make something for me or something I care about without any commercial constraints and then throw it into the world, whether it's perfect. But you can feel that in the work, can't you? 
Oh, so, so you uh, can feel that you personally believed in that. Yeah, making and, it for its own sake. Yeah, and w- so the thing we've got, which is re- we've got a really interesting tension point, which is we really believe in that that idea that you have to give yourself, and you should be making things that you believe in and you love, and you try them for the the shit of just making cool stuff. But we've also got this weird response, uh, nice responsibility where most of the projects we do with our clients are cultural icons. They're mm-hmm. things that live in the real world for mm-hmm. real people. So if we're, like, we're rebranding ITV at the moment. So, for example, like, everybody's watched ITV. My gran, my aunt, my cousins, my friends' friends. So that everybody's, you know, knows what that is. So if you're designing for yourself, you, you want to give something of yourself, but you also realise that you're designing for millions of people who, it, they're just watching telly or they're hanging out with the family or mm-hmm. they just put the kids to bed and they're having a glass of wine. And that, it's that constant balance of those two things, I think, that makes the work we do really interesting because we, we have a responsibility to ourselves, but then we have a responsibility to all those people who are just living life. Yeah. And we want to make something cool for them. They don't need to know we did it, of course. No. But they, sh- they, could f- they can feel whether or not we were into it, I think. You're absolutely right. You know, I, I had the next episode I've got coming out with a guy called Dan Kieran, who founded Unbound. Do you know Unbound? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dan's a, he lives on the next street for me. With, uh, like seemingly all my guests these days, I met him on the dog walk. <laughs> <laughs> and Dan's wonderful. He's just a very interested, curious person. And he refers to it in one of his books, which is called The Surfboard. And he refers to it as Spielzeug. It's a German word, but it literally means plaything, yeah. like a toy. And it's that feeling of that something's alive, that something's been made for its own purpose. Mm. It's, he describes it as when you walk into the house, you're going to buy and you know it's the one. And you can't, language can't do it justice, but it's there. And yeah, so I think it's absolutely vital to, to, to get some semblance of that in work. Yeah. And you know, again, it's, that shouldn't be interpreted by anyone as we're just doing what we want for us. It's it, it, like you say, it's that constant battle of, you know, you, you have to have the structure and the checkpoints and the rest of That's the right. stuff to make, yeah. you know, to break it down. Like you said about what uh, what the idea is, apart from you know, like what what is it at its essence? You have to, to take that step back at some point and refine the raw material. Yeah, you do. I, but I think you know, at our root, you know, when we began, it was just the sheer passion and excitement of creating something. You know, we're in the privileged position of inventing something from new and and to be honest actually that's the fire that we have to keep burning you know we we call it the ignite session because it it does that it ignites the idea but then the challenge is to certainly over the arc of projects that six to nine months is to keep refueling it and making sure that we don't veer off uh, trap right there's this kind of tendency sometimes where you start to uh, from from a very pure idea start to build a system and then that system starts to overtake the actual creativity and then you can start to dilute and lose it. So one of the big challenges, certainly for something like uh, ITV or any of the other projects that we've done is going back to that reservoir of magic. In fact, we, we create kind of magic walls or decks or so on so that we say, why did we love this? You know, what is it that we got excited about? You know, can we capture that and keep it along the arc of the project so that, you know, as we get to sharing with the world, as Simon was just talking about, the audience feels that. And it's this hidden subconscious quality, uh, whether it's craft or the care with every little moment interaction, but it's rooted in um, the love of making it. And I think, you know, as a creative, that that's really a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, if you fall in love with it or find why you should love it, um, that's really powerful. I, I, I generally believe as well is, if you make something you truly love, and you really care about and pour yourself into it, 
other people can feel it. Yeah. And it's like, if we all walked along a wall now for a project we were doing, I'd bet you a million pounds that you would go, oh, that's cool. Mm. Well, I like that. And you would intuitively just like something. Mm. And I would never be on your shoulder if you were watching telly or at a football match saying, we, we designed this to do this. You never have that liberty. But you should feel like you see, you see an icon or you might see a colour or you might swipe something and get to what you, you need to be doing. But you think, oh, there was a human or somebody cared about that moment in the same way that if you pick up a beautiful, we would describe this microphone. Like it's designed by someone, so it, it has a feeling that I don't know who designed it, but I like it. Mm -hmm. And then, fine, so I'll interact with it and it'll make my life a little bit better. Yeah. And on that level, it's actually quite simple. Yeah. You have to be pretty good at what you do to, to get to the level, I suppose. But if you put yourself into it, I think you're halfway there, at least. I think so. And, and does that then, I guess, does that naturally then lead on to a culture where people are unafraid to say when they don't like something? And so whether that be their own work or, or to kind of, not call out as strong, but, you know, to, but to create honest dialogue around the work that you're all making collectively? Yeah, it's a good question, that. We, we, we literally just talked about that this morning. Because... There can be a corrosiveness about, uh, or preciousness, let's say, about protecting your work. Because you, you, when you show, first show work, you're in a fragile state of mind, aren't you? Mm -hmm. And you want people to like it. Yeah. And if someone goes, I don't like that, you're like, oh, fuck, <laughs> why not? And you either feel bad about yourself or you defend it and you're like, well, fuck you. Mm. And sometimes that's quite cool to have that debate. So, and you need a bit of fuel. So we try and create a space where, as we're working, there's a, there's a constant kind of checks and balances like this, what's missing, but we're trying to put it into a positive, so we go, well, we've got this, and we've won this. What do you feel is missing? You know, so there's a lot of asking questions so that it, it's not saying, I don't like black, I yeah. prefer it to be white, or I think your typography is shit. But you, you can ask the question which is, so why have we chosen a serif? What does that represent? And what does typography really do? It's the voice of the brand. Mm -hmm. So actually, what's it saying? What's the language in that? That's a much more interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. What's the narrative? And you just build up to somewhere where you start to add things which are useful rather than going, I don't like that specific piece of design. Yeah. And I think you have to have the confidence as well is to let things gestate even if you don't like them because someone might need to get those things out in order to put that to bed to do the next thing. Yeah. Whereas if you kill it, they'll just revert back to something everyone knows. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. safe, and the work shit. Yeah. That's true, you know, I've done that many a time where, yeah, where that's happened, yeah. where, you know, the first iteration hasn't gone right, and then quite quickly you start looking through your own stuff and going, ah, oh, you get just, a bit yeah, touchy could, it, yeah, 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 exactly. Just yeah. stultify a little bit, yeah. It's hold, hold, I mean, you're kind of, it's holding the nerve, really, to see where it goes and that's why this this period is really important to give it time to to grow and germinate you know ideas are fragile and um it's easy to either criticize or feel disappointed that something isn't right but actually if you flip it and say actually we're on a we're on a journey a continuum here and allow things to germinate and grow it's it's amazing for the team because they feel like they are owning the work rather than it being directive it's something that they have agency over and it's a conversation and, and the questions are so powerful because they're surfacing their version of the answer and therefore they believe it and own it and they're going to be at certain points where you might need to say actually you know let's go in this direction over that but the the way that the team is going to grow individuals are going to grow is if they figure it out for themselves and so the questions mean that um 
they do, you know, and it is quite powerful to see that. And, and certainly for us, I think the big thing is to um, expand the ability to absorb different perspectives on design. We may not specifically like it or do it that way, but that's why we have a team, you know, to have diversity and different perspective and different ways of doing things. And then suddenly, you know, we have this breadth of work that we may not have otherwise. So it's a different, the singularity is in um, the ambition to do great work with a sense of attitude and spirit and to differentiate, not necessarily a, a house style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and diversity yeah. is crucial for that. I yeah. think it's exciting to think you might come into a place, in your case, of 50 people. Yeah. And you've got all them, you know, that breadth of references and experiences, and there might just be that one little seed in there that's just blows everyone's minds. Exactly. It's a great feeling when that happens. Yeah, it's like, um, it's like a domino effect, isn't it? Because you walk through the studio and you see something, you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then it makes you think a little bit different. You see something else, you go, oh, that's interesting. And you just, you just by that osmosis, you, yeah. you just end up, um, you can feel it when the energy's on. You can feel like, oh, there's a buzz. And then you get the buzz and you're like, oh, shit, I feel good. I'm going to make something cool. Yeah. And that's why having a studio is so important. Yeah. Because like, we still have flexibility. So we have days when we're in and days when we're not. But the days when we're in, there was a palpable physical energy to the studio. Yeah. And it makes better work. Yeah. No question. Yeah, I miss that. You know, I seek that in, I mean, cafes. As yeah. a writer, that's quite good. The energy's good there for the way I write. But, you know, it's, yeah, yeah I do with, that's the thing as a freelancer. I've got a garden studio now, which is lovely. That's a real luxury when it made when we moved to Salisbury. But still, you know, the isolation can sometimes be yeah. productive. I yeah. love that energy. Like a day to day in London, yeah. the writing's just flying out, you know, it's like just, yeah, it's good. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, um, some of our team uh, are in LA this week uh, on a project, and, and one of the things that we, uh, well, I think, you know, a lot of people did pre COVID was travel and so on. So we're getting back into that, but we think that that's usually important in, um, in going there, being part of uh, an environment. So, you know, something like um, uh, when we work with AC Milan, going to San Siro and being part of the 80,000 fans and the ultras stomping for two hours before and the flags waving and so on, you, you bring that back to the work. Mm. So whether that's, you know, coming to London for the day or being lucky enough to go to uh, Milan or, or LA or, uh, you know, somewhere else, it does refuel you. And I think there's kind of a, it can be a misconception that just sitting and plugging away at something endlessly will get you somewhere. And actually it's stepping off and, and refreshing yourself that, you know, might give us that uh, energy or inspiration that we need, and it's 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 exciting when that happens, and you feel recharged. Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible when that happens. I mean, again, there was something you said there about this stomping of the ultras. It's it goes back to the language thing, doesn't it? Whether it's slam poetry that works for somebody and not for others. Yeah, that's a you can't articulate what that that feeling of being in that stadium, that almost coliseum style. That's right. Um, energy that's going on there, that release of steam. And you bring that to a project in ways that you can't always articulate, I think, whether that's subconscious or something that manifests in a different form later down the line. But, yeah, football and sports are kind of unique for that in some ways. Yeah, well, it's the same old thing with football, isn't it? When you root back to it, is you can't change your football club. Yeah. So you can change the trainers you have on your watch, your hat, your jacket, your house, your whatever, but you can't change your football club. Mm-hmm. So so the... the um, relationship to your life is so defining that the responsibilities are far greater magnitude so whenever we do a football club the 
engagement with people, like real people on the street and the people who are behind the scenes and the people in the community, is not that it's more important, but it is vital in order to do it properly. And what happens is you, you're serving those people who are in the stadium, but then you've got to balance that with the people who will never go to the stadium but who might love the club. Mm-hmm. And you balance those two worlds, but at least you're fueled by having looked someone in the eye that will go there on that rainy Wednesday night when they get battered 3-0. Yeah. And they'll, that's just another memory to put in the bank. And you, yeah. But it's real. It's a real thing. Well, let's talk about that process, because you did a fantastic job on Everton recently. And um, Poison Chalice sprang to mind. I mean, as a sort of broken down Leeds fan myself Simon it's yeah. like that horrible crest that they released yeah, and then yeah. pulled the same afternoon mm-hmm. because of the oh, crazy backlash um, but yeah I put down in my notes that, that, that the poison chalicing is only true without the due diligence is that something you'd agree with? 100% yeah um, when they called it so it was right at the beginning of Covid so it was like literally as, as it was happening and we thought the project might go away, um, but it didn't. And it was interesting because we did it remotely. And normally we'd be able to go to the stadium, but the, obviously the, right. the, the, the club was shut. But the first thing we talked about was um, the history. So if Everton's one of the founding clubs of, of the league, it's got deep, deep history. It's rooted in one of the great football cities of the world. Um, and as a community club, they've been doing the things that clubs should be doing for decades. And they've been doing it through the good times and the bad times. So they're not a kind of Johnny-come-lately who suddenly go, let's look after our fans, blah, blah, blah. Nor do they want to be um, like some trendy, premier, shiny sports club. They want to be Everton, but reach more people. So the due diligence is really important. And they, they did have a, a tricky period with their brand. And I think it was in a period for football when there's a set of rebrands where were there were more marketing exercises and just change programs for the sake of it rather than like what's really happening like why are we doing this and obviously with Everton new stadium um, investment developing that kind of future perspective on the club there's a good reason to do that Milan was the same they're building a new stadium and it's about projecting the next generation of the club but what you shouldn't do is forget the two or three generations that went before mm-hmm. because that's what makes the club and that's what wires it into the blood and the heartbeat of the city and Everton is Liverpool, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a city. It's like it's deep rooted in in the people there. So you can't fuck about with that. No. It's like real. It's super real. Um, and it, honestly, it's like a distinct honour as well. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously I'm a Leeds fan, so you have rivalries. But uh, clubs like Everton, that you know, the People's Club, lots of people see them as a second favourite. So there is a responsibility to general culture as well. Mm-hmm. And what we tried to do is find a system that was rooted in the value of where their heritage, the emblem had come from and use some of those elements rather than just like wash everything away and start from scratch. Yeah. So it's got like a, there's a kind of street level grit to it I think that isn't in a lot of sports branding mm-hmm. because of that. I think so. I mean I think it just the consistency is fantastic and particularly love the typeface you created for it. Is that going down your Rupert Condensed? That yeah. custom, yeah. custom yeah. typeface? Yeah, well I, I guess in the, in the, in the crest going back um, you know, to finding the, the equity in a brand, certainly with a, with a club, it's sort of revered and holier than thou, and you, you have to respect it. And so taking the time to understand what, why things exist, and, and particularly same, same thing with AC Milan as, as with Everton, is not changing things for the sake of it. You know, with a, a, a refresh or a rebrand, you're thinking, well, potentially aesthetic, but this is about the club values and how to project that in a way that... Um, fans can 
you know, feel, still feel part of, but then it reaches across the world. But then when it came to um, the crest, you know, there, there's something within it, right? Prince Rupert's Tower. And we found that that was really interesting sort of motif. And, and when we came to the, the icon and symbol, it was a modernized version of that. And we have to go, went through quite a few iterations to find that. It wasn't, I think it was actually one of the first sketches uh, Matt um, did in his, in his notebook. Yeah. And it's one of those things that was magic, but you have to go full circle to realize that actually there's something there. And then when we came to the, the typeface, it was, you know, how, how do we imbue it with some of that character? And we've got these beautiful angles within the tower, and they, they become part of the system as well. So it's using it with uh, some control and delicacy, otherwise everything can be overpowering, and suddenly you know, you've got sweeping angles everywhere. So certainly with the typeface, it was the craft of finding where we could fit this in. And, and when it was released, I think, you know, on Twitter, pre-us launching it, people were spotting aspects of it and going, hang on a minute, we see this change. And to be honest, that's a wonderful thing, for those subtle things to be noticed by fans without so them being the called out. They did, yeah. yeah. Wow. We weren't allowed to share the work for quite a while because um, they wanted to kind of soft launch it. Mm. And, and one of the things is it's hardwired into the jersey. I don't know if you've seen, but it's actually the design is stitched into the jerseys. Yeah. And it takes a couple of seasons for that to come through. So they wanted to take time for that to happen and make sure the fans realise that this is a transitional programme. We're not just going to blast the crest out. Yeah. So the design system and the iconography we created, it's a bit like the Nike swoosh and the Nike logo. Mm. We're keeping the crest, but the icon frees them to have a more dynamic and contemporary design system. But it was really fascinating on Twitter and Instagram. People started going like, why is that? Like, oh, there's a tower on here. And then the, and they were like, oh, this is really interesting. And then when we released the project, they were, all the uh, Evertonian fans started piling in. And generally, on the most part, really happy because they could see where it came from. So they started debating and uh, one guy laid out all the logos they've ever had and said, look, uh, of the 12 crests, eight times it's had the Rupert's towering, so it makes sense that it came out of there and stuff. Yeah. And then they start to do the work with you because they realise yeah. that you found it for a reason. You didn't randomly just take a crest and put a you know a logo on it and a shape. They'd act, they could tell where the language came from. Yeah. And it, for me, I've, those types of projects are really personal because I literally remember what it's like to be making that. And I didn't design the stuff, I was working with the team on it. But I remember Matt and Dan and the guys designing stuff. And it's like a moment in time, like a really like profound memory that is like a life memory as well as a work memory, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, that's a project where I can feel the energy of what it was like to make that work in the work. Yeah. Like when I look at it, I go, I know that everyone was like fully buzzing when we were doing that. And felt on it and sharp and like we got it and when we showed it to the client they were excited and felt sharp and on it and when we shared it with the fans they felt it was good and useful and helpful mm. not everybody some people thought it was shit I think you've always got to accept in something that's well, like we said it's something yeah. that's so tribal and so yeah. and I like that. you're always going to have a few people who were upset about it or yeah. I, don't, I don't agree with on the whole we came through okay so yeah we were acing line and ourselves. <laughs> yeah when this goes out everyone's like takes two steps back yeah. the Milan uh, one we really thought like you yeah. know, some guy was going to deliver a pig's head to dog <laughs> but um, it was the same with that they, a lot of the Milanese fans rooted back to the colour palette and the forms and the shape of the, the crest and we didn't mess the crest with that one but they, they saw the benefit of the extra material so mm -hmm. they, they saw it as additive to their her heritage rather than replacing it mm -hmm. and I think that's the key when you're doing something as important as um, 
a football club. And yeah. the same applies to a lot of sport, to be fair. Yeah. You know. I think you're right. You see, you see, that's really interesting to know that they picked up on that because I likened it, when I was playing this show, I likened it to where there's a story from when the film Lord of the Rings and um, Peter Jackson had detail that would never be seen on screen and it was kind of emblems from like Gondor and things that were yeah. on the inside of the armour so only the actors would ever see that. Right. But again, it was an extra layer of love that, yeah. that enabled them to invest. Sure. Um, I mean, it's not quite that subversive but it, but again, it, the fact that people consciously recognise that, I think that speaks to the fact that actually Actually, a lot of football fans probably wouldn't have themselves down as, as creative or uh, design sensitive, but they are really, I think, as a culture. I think just growing up, before I had any semblance of being interested in the arts, I was redesigning shirts for fun in my, in my sketchbooks, and, yeah. and, and that tiny detail within the Yorkshire Rose meant a lot, yeah. you know, and I think that can be said of a lot of fans. But that's, um, it's symbols, isn't it? So if you think about it, so if you, if you take the Leeds badge, the colours match, or the Leeds kit, the colours matter. Uh, Yorkshire Rose matters but if you think about when you went to football the streetwear everyone's wearing what trainers are wearing the fashion of football mm -hmm. the music the culture it's all part of it and you know when you're when you first started going to footy when you're a teenager they're the formative years of like how you're finding yourself as a person so I, I was listening to kind of mod music and so you know someone in Manchester might be listening to kind of rave music or whatever but you're wearing the baggy trousers and you know the the hats and all that gear, and it's it's part of all culture then. Mm -hmm. And people pick up on that. They pick up on you know record covers and the colours of their shirts and the forms of things. And they might not know it's uh, it's a profession, but they know that it matters. Mm -hmm. You know, and and I, you know, I wouldn't wear ever wear red, for example. Yeah. You know, um, I might if I was working in Milan. You know, take a jersey. But I wouldn't consciously wear red, and I think maybe that's because of Liverpool and Man United. You know, <laughs> it does it play that far sometimes. I don't yeah. know. I mean, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's something said as well about that about again the, the the thing being alive and the finding the detail and then the the role of the fans that came up. One of the stories you told in the videos you did about the MTV Two mm -hmm. project back in the early days of Dixon Baxi and I love that story about the kind of going out and finding the motifs the Walkmans and, the, That's and right. presenting this collaged artwork I thought it was a brilliant story and then something completely different to what the client expected but in particular from that story what I loved is when you switched from imaginings of what that language might be to going on forums and pulling actual language that was as you described it way superior to what you'd come up with to that That's point right. and again that speaks to that, um, that due diligence again doesn't it yeah and it, it's um you know, being immersed, we, we talk about becoming a fan, so there are a lot of industries, it's arguably very easy to fall in love with AC Milan or Everton, aside from being a Leeds fan and so on, but, you know, fall in love with the culture and the spirit because they're full of energy and passion and so on, but you have to apply that almost, well, to every project that we work on is how we become a fan uh, or, or immersed in their world and that environment and see the world through their eyes. and. MTV2, I guess, was a very formative project, as, as you know, it was our first one. And, you know, one of your earlier questions was tracking back to our roots of, of uh, why we do what we do and how we translate that into the creative process. But the, the immersion into a world or pulling things off forums or, or, being, or standing with the ultras and being jostled around is very much part of that due diligence. But I guess, really, it's a part of living the life of that brand or the fan or that experience and that helps you translate that so when you're in the studio or at the computer or, or making anything you can tap into that and say what did that feel like and how do I uh, um, 
feel part of that, but also amplify it. And that's the same with clients as well. You know, clients are not some distant kind of entity. You know, if you feel uh, some empathy with them, uh, that adds value to the work, and, and you want to do good for them and who they serve as well, which is the audience. Uh, but we, yeah, we always kind of tap back. Uh, yeah, that, that MT2 one is a fantastic anecdote, a fantastic story, but it just happens on a different scale. You know, so rather than ripping Walkman's, uh, uh, you know, and, and uh, billboards off the wall, we're just doing it in a, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Just trying to capture something that feels uh, very authentic and alive. And it's that attitude coupled with the kind of selfish passion of creating something wonderful coupled with why we're doing it that should make work that feels exciting. The thing is, people people smell bullshit a mile off. Yeah. And they can tell when it's fake or not real. And it's something that's like super important to us that we can obviously live every single life of every person we're designing for. Yeah. But the last thing we want to do is make something that just misses their world. Yeah. Because there's, there's enough people out there marketing bullshit to people and mis-selling the world and, and lying and, and, and not really figuring out that authenticity and being genuine and real on the terms of what the brand or the company or club does for someone and their world. It's like it's really important. Mm-hmm. There's like a contract between those two things. Mm-hmm. And I think if you don't do the due diligence and learn enough and listen enough and be humble enough to realise you need to know more before you design, you'll do stuff which is fake and it's pointless. It's like it's, it's such a waste of time. And the audience or the fan just smells it a mile off. Mm-hmm. Like the, the crest thing or whatever. They're just like, well, what the fuck? Yeah. And then you fucked. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like that's an ethos that you've, you know, instilled in the entire studio from everything we've talked about. There's a um, fantastic story that Ben Ryan tells. I don't know if you're aware of him, but he was the Olympic gold medal coach for the Fiji Sevens rugby team. And he was a, it's one of the best sporting stories ever out there and he talks about the moment where you know he had his field of dreams speech planned in the final against New Zealand in Rio and um, and he just walked in and tuned into this amazing loose energy and just flinging the ball around in the changing room just playful you know just socks rolled down and he just said I just walked back out I just I dropped the entire speech I thought I've had my job is done here like the yeah. momentum is so strong yeah. that I, they don't need a word from me and they just walked away and said go out there and have fun do exactly what you're doing yeah. and they trounced New Zealand it's Rice Rich's story, yeah. and um, maybe not quite so dramatic because it's over a twenty-year period. But like, it seems that removal of ego is absolutely critical to, to allowing good designers to do their job well. Yeah, it, there is a obviously if your name's on the door, there is a kind of ego, arrogance, self-aggrandization. There's a lot of shit that comes with that that you've got to be wary of. And he and I have fallen in that trap before. You know, certainly when we were younger, mm. and it's this thing of. Um, believing that you are the thing and and of course you're not yeah and and that's why now when we think about the agency it's about um, it, it's an entity so it's everybody that's in that it's not us mm-hmm. because it, it, if you have an ego you have like really big blind spots to whether or not you're good you're bad you're doing derivative work and, and the only way that you can I think keep learning is to be humble enough occasionally because we're not always like that. Sometimes we make mistakes. But if you're humble enough, you could go, oh, shit, I can learn something from this person. And it doesn't matter what level they are. Yeah. And it's, it's that thing of, like, you see how someone really is when you see them treating somebody that they don't have to treat well. Yeah. That's the thing I always look for. When I'm out with someone 
in a restaurant or someone passes through the studio, how they treat the intern or the person who's serving them, the waiter, tells me more about them than anything else. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of levelling is a really important thing. Yeah, and the very fact that you're open about making mistakes and having fallen yeah. into those traps speaks volumes too, you know, because some people probably would never even allow themselves to recognise that about themselves. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to. You have to. Self-reflection is, is critical, and we've been doing this for a long time, and I, I would say that you know, certainly from my point of view, learned so much, you know, we were not, although, you know, in a sense, there's an entrepreneurial spirit, there's building a business. So, you know, it was just two of us for a while. So I guess we were the makers, the doers, the thinkers and so on. But as the team has grown, I think we've had to, um, you know, relearn how to work with a team in an entirely new way and create the space for them. You know, that requires, um, uh, self-assessment, you know, self-introspection, uh, reading, learning, changing and adapting, owning up to mistakes, uh, all of those things to get to where we are. You know, you, you, we're not that finished product. We, we kind of have to arc our way to that. Mm -hmm. And there have been swerves and missteps and uh, things where we're like, oh my God, why did we do that? Um, and then you come out of it. But it is a, it's a constant progression. I guess, you know, you just keep swimming, be restless. Uh, adapt and change but also I think as Simon said you know that being humble is is really important and the ability to learn from the team is one of the most exciting aspects of having the studio now is that we get energized from them and hopefully they get something from us a, a place to create and, and be empowered to do what they want to do and grow Dixon Maxi together but also um, you know, for us, that that's how we're learning. We're learning different ways of seeing the world. You know, we have people, I think, from 19 different countries, yeah, maybe, more, um, different perspectives, different ideals, and, and so on. And so I think we're learning faster as well. And I think we have the ability, now that we're not in the business, you know, we haven't been in it for a while, we're kind of allowed to move around it to make change. You know, we have a really excellent kind of senior team but also the team as a whole to help direct but it us. is more it is genuinely more diverse as well yeah mm. so you know when we started the agency i started my first agency over 30 years ago and we've worked in agencies for 25 years yeah. and this is 21 years ago um when we started it it was a real boys club loads of dudes Loads of dudes designing, loads of dudes opening studios, loads of dudes being toxic, loads of dudes thinking they're fucking great. And the reason the industry is better now is there's less dudes and there's more different types of people. Mm -hmm. And I think in the last 10 years, we've changed profoundly in that mm -hmm. kind of mix of um, male-female, different ethnicities, backgrounds, social mobility, all sorts of different things. It's a mix of things. It's just mindsets as much as anything, mm -hmm. you know, physically different with people. But um, that is the thing that's made us far better. Yeah. Um, and an awareness that your perspective is only one perspective and if you have lots of them the work will be miles better and it's, it's that thing of um, side before self hmm. you know it's about the team not us so we create this space but if you look after the team like that, that fantastic story suddenly the energy will work and you don't have to do some stupid long speech because they'll do it for you. Yeah. They'll lead you. It, yeah. it flips around. Mm -hmm. And that, that in particular is a really good story, I think. Yeah.
The whole, that, whole, that book's incredible. Um, yeah. Seven Seven. I highly, highly recommend it. Best sporting book I've read, and I'm not a Union fan really, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's about more. But than when that, it's um, when it's something which is a human driver, it transcends. But the thing yeah. with sport is, it's so close to your soul and heart, you can see that more closely than say like business books or like yeah. creative books. When it's sport, it's like real yeah. to people. Yeah. No, so how do you determine the way forward? Because you know the, the, those two great examples. I mean, talk about football and history. It doesn't get much better with Everton and Milan. So you know, invariably, I, I, maybe you get approached by other clubs, and you could end up doing a lot of that stuff. Well, how do you, how do you determine the sort of the, the course forward it's, as an agency? It's a really good question, and we were literally talking about this this morning. It's two things we've been talking about this morning. But we're saying, of course, we could just keep doing football clubs. Yeah. And you know it'd be great if we did um, well maybe Leeds, but if you did what did Real Madrid or Benfica or something, yeah. it'd be right old buzz or Barcelona. But what we've got to a position now is where we kind of project out into the world, and we've got enough range to our work that we get some really interesting contacts, so people come to us. So people com- are coming to us for an approach or mindset more than a specific project, which is really helpful. But also we just go out and meet people. So we're very proactive now about trying to stretch ourselves and work in areas that we haven't worked so that we don't become a sports specialist or an entertainment mm. specialist or a tech specialist or a property specialist. We're just about creating great design systems for really interesting companies that do good things for really massive audiences. And it's about design at scale for everyone. That's the thing we're after. Um, and democratization of good design everywhere. Uh, and as little compromise to that as possible. So we just project ourselves out. And we found the more we open source we are, the more we talk about why we do what we do and the way we carry ourselves as a company, the better work we get. Mm-hmm. And in most instances, clients very rarely ask us to show work. They, say, they come and say, oh, we've got this problem. And we talk about that and we'll do a proposal, chat to blah, blah, blah. And they go, oh, you've got the gig. And at no point have we sat down and gone through a deck of presenting work. Mm. They just go to our website, they either like the work or they don't. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're buying the ethos of the company, I think. Mm-hmm. And of course that means you're more likely to get interesting work, Yeah. I think. Or it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, and I think it also shows that you've curated the work you have done very well in that regard. Yeah, I think the curation is critical. So, you know, we are lucky enough to be approached by a wide variety of companies and we have a, a criteria that we, we that pits out ethos and what we want to do and where we want to go and, and diversity of work is a critical part of that. Uh, scale of work, uh, doing the right thing, but the, the curation of the body of work that we have is equally important because it helps shape where we want to go. And it's mm. it's funny, when you talk about things like AC Milan or Everton, they have an outsized effect um, in other sectors or industries. So we're working with British Land at the moment on um, the entire neighborhoods that are like Canada water that are being developed over the next decade and longer and how they integrate communities and are sustainable and do things responsibly. But AC Milan has a positive effect on our relationship with them because they feel that a project like that is built on values. And if it can kind of galvanize fans and help them feel like they're still part of something and magnify what they love, maybe you can do that for a neighborhood. Mm. Maybe the communities that feel like an area is being gentrified actually might feel like they build trust with this and want to be part of that. So it's really interesting that 
beyond the aesthetic, there are underlying sort of values and principles that I think can transcend the work. So it's not a football club, it's what that means and what that has done uh, for, a, for a business or a club in that case. I hope I'm making sense, said Siri. Um, <laughs> Siri wasn't in Italian. Yeah, Siri was, he wasn't in Italian. But it's really interesting that you tra can translate that into, into other aspects of other businesses. And I think there's certain clients, and probably the ones that we're drawn to most, that actually see that. And that's why we find, find that chemistry right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, that is a great observation, actually, about the neighborhood thing and the football fans, because yeah. the downsides are massive, aren't they, to, to get it badly wrong with either. Totally. Yeah, well, getting yeah. it wrong is the fear, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Whenever you redesign anything of scale, I'll make anything really, there's, you do have a responsibility to the people you're designing for. And that's not just the client of the company, it's all the people that you, you're serving. So that you want to do, it's like a really basic thing, you want to you do a good job. Mm -hmm. And it's like an old school thing, but if you could do a good job for people, they'll let you do it again. Yeah. And that's what we've, all we've ever done is that if we do a good job and we get really excited, we love it, we put mm. our heart and soul into it, and we do a good job and it works, and everyone goes, oh, that was helpful, you get another job. Mm -hmm. And it's a really basic sales system, but it, it's much better than like, ringing people up and going, can you give us a rebrand job? You just say, look, the last few things we did were really useful to those people. Mm. And they go, oh, well, that, we could do with a little bit of that. Yeah. You know, so it simplifies things a little bit because mm -hmm. our industry can be full of bullshit and complexity and uh, people tell you there's lots of there's certain ways you should work and certain ways of doing stuff and we're great believers in being quite honest mm -hmm. and saying maybe we're not right for this. Yeah. Maybe another agency or another person would be much better suited for this. Uh, so rather than trying to do everything and trying to take on projects just for money, which is what sometimes happens, you do it for the project. You'll get paid well anyway but you're more likely to do a good job. So saying no sometimes is better than saying yes, if that makes yeah. sense. It's really powerful. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. We do still do that now. Yeah, yeah. I do more than I ever used to, and there was a time in between when it just killed me every time I'd say no. Don't you feel good, though, when you do it? I mean, I in feel the, incredible it, now, yeah. Yeah, but it's a positive feeling, isn't it? Yeah, because, it, like you say, it's mutual. I used to see yeah. it as that I was letting someone down, when I was actually, yeah. no, I'm doing people a favour now, because yeah. if I don't feel, if I feel that cold about a project, I shouldn't be doing it. Mm -hmm. You've been respectful. That's exactly what you are. Right. You've been respectful. And I think the more people like you that had integrity to say, I love this, I'm good at doing this, and I'm going to do a brilliant job with this, but this doesn't suit me, the better for everybody. Yeah. Whereas if everyone goes, well, I'll do that, that, and that, and do a shit job on two of them and never show it, that's not helping anybody, is it? Because no. we no. get asked that a lot, like, said, you know, why don't you, you know, where do you put your bread and butter work? And we always say, we don't do bread and butter work, we just do projects that we would be proud enough to put on our, our, our website. Mm -hmm. Not everything we do is perfect, so sometimes we mess up, but... We'd rather do fewer projects and do them really well than try and do everything and, you know, yeah. go for like some sort of land grab. Because yeah. then it's money that's leading you and that's terrible. Well, that's it completely. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I get some projects where it's never bad, but just process. There's yeah. not a lot of thought involved. I'm serving the client, they love it, everyone's happy, I get yeah. paid, that's fine, we all need to do that. Of course. But I don't necessarily put it in the portfolio because mm -hmm. it's advice I always pass down to people new to the industry is treat your portfolios as... as you know, um, an expression of where you want to go, not exactly. just what you've done, and Definitely. it's exactly what you guys said there about the curation. Yeah, Definitely. yeah. I mean, we, we are, I mean, thinking about the future, we are, um, as I said, on this journey to, to reinvent ourselves, and we don't know where that's going to lead us, but we are doing exercises that warm the team up into thinking beyond the work that we have. So we have um, 
time which we call into the future weeks and uh, we have some of the team and we, we go around it's not just the designers where they have time to think about um, either a problem to solve or something that they feel dear to them it can be something personal or something you know on a great magnitude and spend that week crafting or creating something in in a sense that they haven't done so it's kind of pushing at that uncomfortable edge of invention and the simple idea is is not necessarily just the outcome it's the feeling of what that week felt like so it's really interesting it's like they there's a buzz there's an energy there's an excitement so it comes back to that inception phase of of work but it's something that they've made and they own and so the question is do you remember what that felt like why are you excited about this and then the result is actually quite surprising because then because all the shackles are off there are some parameters that that we set to help uh, the blank page uh, syndrome but then the work or the output feels entirely different and you're like, well, how did you get there? And then how do you take that feeling and that approach into the, the day job? Um, that might lead us somewhere new. And it's really interesting. It comes back to the context. If you say we're going into the future and you're liberate to do something, the mind, our minds are blown. And then, but if you said, actually, now we're doing this for X client, and then the box gets smaller and the ideas might get smaller. So it's really interesting. We're trying to find... Um, how to capture that, and that's going to lead us to that future mm-hmm. yeah. know, that we want to find. And that way, that creates plasticity in ideas. It, Absolutely. It, it probably transcends tech. There's a fantastic quote that I came across as part yeah. of research for this book by Sir John Hegarty, and he said about if you nail your practice or your creativity to any master of technology, program, idea, style of working, you start. You know, that's the seed of your own destruction because things, but especially in today's world, yeah. things move so master, uh, fast, so many different levels with technology and ideas, and that you it has to be about ideas, doesn't it? Beyond, yeah, yeah technology is a facilitator. When we started the agency, as we came through to think about starting an agency, there's no Google, smartphones, Uber, electric cars. There was no true internet or email in the tr- like the way it is now. So all those technologies that we're using on a daily basis and the ability to bring a car or food or anybody in the world to your, your house or your doorstep instantly, none of that existed. So if we built our studio on a, a certain technology, a way of practicing, we would have been obsolete 15 years ago. Mm. But if you base it on a way of looking at the world and the set principles and a way of working and an outcome of that, you'll constantly keep learning and then the technology will just allow you to do that. So, you know, everyone's talking about AI and I get asked literally every day by people, is AI going to destroy our jobs? There's going to be no design industry, no creative industry, which is obviously nonsense because if it gets to that stage, there'll be no humanity if AI is completely taken over everything. (laughs) It will be a terminator. But um, no, it'll be a tool and it might fast track some things we might miss certain things but allow you to do other things yeah it's the same with the metaverse mm-hmm. you know it, it's it, during covid there's never going to be offices anymore everyone's going to only only live in their houses and work on zoom of course they're not yeah. it's stupid but human are, humans are tribal you need interaction with people it yeah. creates energy you flexibility is amazing the ability to speak to someone instantly around the world Oh, God, but, yeah. but it should be for a reason. You don't just do it for the sake of it. Well, no. <laughs> no, that's the thing. It's like, I'd love to do it for this show, but then yeah. a family, family member asks me to jump on it. And it's weird, isn't it? Like, no chance. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> we did that thing in COVID where we started doing like 
with the family doing like quizzes and playing Scrabble and you know having dinner at the other end of the table and all yeah. that to kind of replicate mm-hmm. and then after a while you're like this is just weird yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. that was a, my first fiction book came out of that period and all that did like it isolation watch it's called yeah dark kind of stampy little two three line passages of all these different people yeah. coping mm-hmm. or not coping in, in lockdown and it was yeah it was tapping how did it feel for it to come out then was it really cathartic the book, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It helped to manage to, you know, I was a new twin parent as well in that same yeah. period, so it was well, very bizarre well. time. Yeah, um, yeah, so it was part catharsis, part observation. Mm-hmm. I was I'm an observational yeah. person and pick up on all the nuances, but yeah, it was a bit. I, I described it a bit as a symphony of sedation because all you could hear was like strimmers and <laughs> and car engines and people working in the cars. Everyone was on DIY, so it was like the yeah. neighbourhood was these low. Everything looked amazing, didn't homes. it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone's gardens and all the grass was cut perfectly. But yeah, yeah, it was cathartic. It was just a way to throw me in the deep end with a new medium, and just not look back since. I love it, and uh, yeah, it's fun. It's good. We we did we made a couple of projects in in lockdown for the same reason, which is making something while we were kind of compressed just made sense because it's something we know what to do, and at least it gives you some sort of emotional or creative release. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, you're just kind of in stasis, aren't you? Yeah. And that's a terrible feeling. So we, we made a couple of things, and it did help a little bit. It they? did, yeah. I, I think it's, it's really interesting, you know, that it, it led to or reinforced the fact that we wanted to share more. Yeah. You know, so um, the fact that I think we created Be Brave V2, a digital book, and we shared it, you know, for everyone everywhere for free, and um, and then it, it kind of led to more and more conversations about well, how can we do more of that? How can we magnify and reveal uh, and demystify what an agency is? You know, how an agency works, um, not just the design roles, but everyone in it. I think mm-hmm. you know, there's again that misconception that you have to be a designer, but there's you know, the people doing all sorts of things that make the work what it is. And I think, you know, we've really committed to that. And, and so that led to the Dixon Maxi Way season one, uh, where Sai and I spoke. Um, and now we're actually in the midst of Dixon Maxi Way season two, which is coming out uh, later this year. And that's perspectives from the entire team. And so it just changes the narrative and it, it continues to kind of... Um, offer a catharsis, I'm sure, for some of the team, but an ability to share what we do in a much richer and deeper way. And the simple idea is, well, how do we help, you know, maybe the next generation, you graduates, to understand what it is to be a creative and and how to um, be part of that? And, And I think the exciting thing is that it should feel more relatable because you're hearing voices from every age, every background, and I think that confluence is going to be really exciting. Mm, I think it's a great idea too. Yeah. You know, on so many levels. I loved watching those videos and, you know, I kept, I kept sort of, I sort of had it there. I thought I had the skeleton in my questions and then I kind of had it there and I was, you know, tidying some bits, mindless activity while I listened. I kept running back to my desk, and <laughs> the question, running back. After, I stopped saying good stuff. It was like, there's loads of nuggets in there. <laughs> it was good for us as well. I mean, that's an ego thing, of course. By us talking about what we do, there is a danger of over projecting sure. yourself. So for years, we were anxious about doing that. And we just thought, fuck it, it doesn't matter. Some people are going to think we're dicks for like, talking about ourselves. But they thought, if we just genuinely say what we think, somebody might think, oh, I could start an agency. Yeah. 
because I didn't go to university, you know, he did, but we come from different backgrounds, we just thought we'll start an agency, see yeah. what happens. And it's, it was all right. Yeah, you it know. doesn't come across in that way at all. The way you do it is that you're, you're, the love of the creativity and the agency is, is at the core of it. And that's what matters. It's the same, yeah. same reason doing this. And it's like the LinkedIn stuff, you're quite prolific on there now. Yeah. But the stuff is great. It's golden advice and, it's, and it comes from experience. And you can't put a price on that for someone who's new. And, you know, we like anyone else. We all rely on the next generation of people. I think so. In, in and way beyond the design. I mean, that is really, you know, you're talking about the future. That's what we've got to now is that. Um, our job is to help people uh, get into the industry, come through our company, pass them on to the next agency or wherever they go next, better than we receive them, and try and help the industry. And you know, uh, our intern program, for example, which we've been doing for quite a few years now, has worked really well. Where we've got design directors and heads of departments now, we've come from completely different backgrounds, and now in much more senior roles, which wouldn't have been if we didn't help facilitate that. Not just us. There's lots of agencies that are doing it. But the only way we're going to make our industry better is through action. Mm-hmm. And loads of people are talking about stuff, but you've actually got to put your money where your mouth is. So we flipped our whole business model. It's basically, traditionally it would be um, do projects, make money, bottom line, blah, blah, blah. You need a team to do this. And it's like really simple how you run a creative business. But we flipped ours around, which is people first, then the work, and then money. It's all the way around. And if we get the people thing right and look after them and pay them well and create a safe space for them, they'll make better work, we'll make money, but we should invest that back in. Mm-hmm. You know, The business shouldn't be about making money, it should be about creating a space where people can make really great work and have a good time doing that. Yeah. It's hard work, don't get me wrong, it's not easy. But um, So that's what we think now, is it's, we've created something really cool. So having more studios, having more money, winning big awards, it doesn't. All of that stuff doesn't matter to us. The, if if we feel like we're progressing and learning and developing, and the team is doing that, then that's what a good agency for us is for the next generation. Mm-hmm. And that should be lots of different types of people who might not necessarily be able to get into the industry. Mm. If we can help support that a little bit, I think we'll have done a good job more than necessarily doing another football club. Yeah, which we'll probably do anyway. Yeah, but again, the reasons you know that's all yeah. it comes down to. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much to Simon Dixon and Paula Baxi for taking time out of their busy schedule to talk wisdom. <laughs> I love talking to them. I could listen all day. You know, it's funny. I, I Like I said at the top of the show, I'm going through a real quiet patch. One of the worst ones I've ever had. And ironically, it was the same thing that happened when I was writing Champagne and Wax Crayons, my first book. So maybe it's, uh, maybe it's the universe telling me to get my arse in gear and get the manuscript finished for the creative condition and then we'll move things forward. Um, but it's a bit freaky. I'm going to do an episode about it soon and I've got a guest in mind who I yet to, I'm yet to approach. I'm not going to name them. I think they'll be up for it. They live very close to me. Um, about the feelings when you're out of work. It's bloody horrible. It's And it never gets easier. So I'm 14 years in and um, you know, I cover this in depth in Champagne and Wax Crayons, which, by the way, is half price now in the run up to Christmas. Um, six ninety, six forty nine down from twelve ninety nine over at pentalandwriter.com. Go and pick up your copy if you haven't read it. Um, but it's awful. It's you know, you it you really puts you through the emotional mill, especially when you've got family to support, which I do have two young kids now. Um, it's fine because I am going to do. I'm going to chat about this, but I had in a, in a future episode. But I. Got, I didn't get complacent, that's not the right word because I'm very driven and I'm very passionate but I was absolutely exhausted in the first couple of years and I am still exhausted because I've got a twin son and daughter 
But in that early period, I made the decision to be kind to myself and to just do the work that came in. And, and thankfully, there was a good amount of work coming in. And then just be a dad, you know, embrace it. Do all of it hard in the first few years. But what that means is I haven't marketed, I haven't chased things, I haven't had conversations like I always did, I haven't kept up to date on my records. So I'm kind of out of the loop. And that's meant that I've come into this real quiet spell now that things have slowed up a little bit on all fronts. And it'll turn around. And before I know it, I'll be, I'll be whinging on the next episode, no doubt that I've got too much on because that's how it goes. Feast or famine in the freelance world is a very common thing, very true. But it's it's challenging. You know, you, when you go through day after day and there's nothing and, and people just got you on file and there's no real work coming in, you start to think, Jesus, cost of living crisis out there. It's... Um, you know, it's hard. Is it ever coming back around? Was it ever any good? You have all those kind of thoughts and there's a whole damning psychology that, that, that comes with that. So it's very hard to put the time to productive use when you're feeling that way. And it takes real discipline to do so. And for the most part, I manage it. But I do need regular pep talks from my wife, from other freelancers who know my work. And uh, I just need that little ego tickle every now and again because it is challenging. Um... I've forgotten what my original point with it was, but anyway, I'm sure you can all relate to that. Um, oh, that was the point, yeah. And and, and so when I went in to talk to Simon and Apova, I, I looked around and saw, you know, the energy with the staff and the, the great projects and the cool books and the coffee table and the trips away for research and everything else. And I loved the idea of it. And I thought, maybe I Maybe I need to train up and get more design skills, as in InDesign and all that, and look at a gig with an agency. But I don't know whether I ever could because... You know, you see my work, the podcast, the fiction, the non-fiction, the illustration, the art, the live stuff. It's very varied within what I do. And I don't know if I'd want to lose that flexibility in the, the kind of independent direction. But if ever I did, dicks and backseat, you know, they're an agency that just get the juices flowing. And I think if you see opportunities coming up there and, and it's up your street, I would apply and if you've listened to this episode, I'm sure you will be doing because they're just, I love their ethos. I love their attitude. I agree 100% with everything they're saying. And um, I encourage you to go and watch the Dixon Baxi Way videos on their website because they're very inspiring and they're very insightful. And there's a lot more than what we talked about today. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Illustration X. Thank you for any reviews and um, subscriptions. Please do give us them. They really help the show. And get us your feedback at Ben Talon or at Ben Talon Pod. I'd love to hear your thoughts on quiet spells, on mental health, on the chat today with Dixon Baxi on the episodes we've got coming up. Um, I'm looking forward to it, guys. Have a wonderful week. Stay well and get in touch if you're not. Nice one. See you later.